Welcome to this presentation of First Baptist Church Loeb. We're glad to have you joining us today. Our mission at FBC Loeb is to bring glory to God by being disciple makers. For that purpose, we present the following resource that it may be a blessing. All right, well, you can grab a Bible and turn to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, and in case you use one of our pew Bibles, you'll find that on page 871. And as you are finding your places, you're all well aware our, our country finds itself in a challenging economic moment uh, as uh, inflation continues to rise and stocks continue to fall and uh, many people are concerned about what they're going to do about it and groceries and gas are more expensive, and retirement plans are being reconsidered. Uh, there's no consensus on how to chart a path forward on that. And as we, uh, many of us struggle with a sense of anxiety about that, Jesus is going to address us this morning. And, and as he does, he's going to uh, warn us of the danger of, of covetousness and greed and call us to have a radical generosity for kingdom purposes. And so we're in Luke chapter 12, and we're going to pick up beginning in verse 13. It says, Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool. This night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And so last week, in the midst of being swamped by a crowd that was too large to count, Jesus warned his disciples against the danger of hypocrisy, and he called them to stand firm in the face of potential persecution. And now as we pick up again here in verse 13, uh, we see that a man from the crowd calls out for Jesus to tell his brother to divide the inheritance with him. And so apparently the, the man's parents have died, and this has led to a dispute over the estate. And so according to the law in Deuteronomy chapter 21, the firstborn son of a family was to gain a, a double portion of the inheritance. Uh, but it, it seems that, that either the, the older brother here uh, isn't sharing the inheritance with the younger brother, or perhaps the younger brother wants more than what he legally has coming to him. Uh, but either way, he tells, he doesn't ask, right? He tells Jesus to take his side in the dispute and exert his influence to try to get what he wants. Now, in response, Jesus says in verse 14, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? In other words, no, Jesus isn't going to do that. That's not his role. Right, Jesus doesn't have the time or the desire to play Judge Judy over everybody's personal uh, legal quibbles with each other and, and disputes. Right? His mission is way bigger than that. 
However, in light of, of his mission, he does take this opportunity uh, to turn this into a teachable moment. All right, this man obviously wants his money, and the older brother obviously wants his money. And so in verse 15, Jesus turns back to the crowd, and he says, Take care, and be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Right, Jesus tells the crowd to be on guard against covetousness or greed in their hearts. And a constant desire to, to get more than what you already have. And he insists that our ability to have a meaningful life is not dependent on how much stuff we have. Then in verses 16 through 21, Jesus gives a parable to illustrate his point. And in the parable, there's a rich man whose fields yield a, an abundant harvest, which sounds like a great way to start a story. The problem is that this actually creates a problem. You see, now the man has so much food that he doesn't have any place to store it. And so he has to figure out, what am I going to do with all this food? And so he sits down and he thinks, and he thinks, and he thinks, and then eventually it occurs to him, I know what I'll do. And he comes up with a plan to build bigger barns that will be able to store all the excess food that he has. All right, now keep in mind that he's already a rich man. All right, he already has more than what he truly needs, and now he has even more because of this crop. But it never occurs to him to take at least some of this excess food and give it to people who don't have enough, which would have been many people in the ancient world. Right, instead, he tears down perfectly good barns, and he spends the extra money to build newer, bigger barns that will be able to hold all of his crops. Right, problem solved. And having done that, he sits down in his recliner, he kicks his feet up, and he begins looking forward to a long retirement full of all of the good things that he has accumulated. Except for the fact that he doesn't have many years to continue living. In fact, he doesn't have many more hours. We see in verse 20 that God rebukes the man for the foolishness of his plan. And he reveals that he's going to die that very night. And he asks the question, all of the things you have prepared, whose will they be? And the answer is, not his. All of this stuff that he has accumulated over the course of his life can no longer benefit him anymore. And at the end of the section, Jesus says that the same thing is true for everyone who lays up treasure for themselves and is not rich toward God. Which implies that there's actually an alternative approach where our material possessions can benefit us in eternity. Of course, that raises the question of what it means to be rich toward God and how we can practically pursue that in our lives. And so Jesus is going to explain that as we pick up again, beginning in verse 22. It says, And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. 
But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried, for all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. So picking up again in verse 22, Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. And so we see that the, the first step in being rich toward God is not being anxious about the material well-being of our lives, not being anxious about our lives. And the word for being anxious here carries a sense of, of worrying about something to the point that it distracts you from being able to focus on whatever it is that you need to do, to, keeps you from being able to function normally. And so maybe you've got something on your mind, and, and you begin thinking about it, but then over time it, it begins to overwhelm you, and your, your thoughts begin to consume you. And it gets to the point where you can't focus on your work, or, or you're not able to sleep at night. Right? That's what we're talking about here. Jesus isn't saying that we, we shouldn't think about financial matters at all, or, or that it's not wise to try and, and plan for, for the future financially. Right? He, he's talking about not allowing ourselves to become preoccupied with concern about our material well-being to the point where anxiety begins to control us, and we can't stop thinking about something out of fear of what could possibly happen. And then starting in verse 23, Jesus gives six reasons why we should not be anxious about the material details of our lives. First of all, he says that we shouldn't worry because life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Now, at first glance, that may sound somewhat confusing. Right? Certainly, there, there's more to life than food and clothing, but there's not really less, is there? Like, like you can't live if you don't have adequate food and clothing. And so at first, this doesn't necessarily sound very reassuring. But on, on closer inspection, I think that Jesus intends the word more here in a comparative sense, as if to say that life is greater than food. The point being that, that Jesus isn't saying that there's more to life than food and clothing, which, which seems both obvious and unhelpful in the battle against anxiety. He, he's calling us to recognize that God's action in creating life is more, it's greater than his work in providing food or clothing to sustain that life. Right? If God is able to create life from absolutely nothing, then certainly he's able to provide us with the food and clothing that we need to live it. And so we don't need to worry. Secondly, in verse 24, Jesus draws our attention to the ravens. Right? He points out that, that birds don't plant seeds or, or harvest crops. They don't have barns to store their food in. And yet God ensures that they get what they need. And as he did a couple of weeks ago with, with the sparrows, Jesus argues that, that people who've been made in his image are much more valuable than birds. And so we have all the more reason to be confident that God will take care of us. Next in verse 25, Jesus takes things from a different angle. And he asks, and which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to his span of life? then you're not able to do as small a thing as that. Why are you anxious about the rest? Right, the thing here is that worrying is pointless. It doesn't actually accomplish anything. Right, for example, if we're concerned about how long we're going to live, 
worrying about it isn't going to help. We don't have the ability to worry ourselves into an extra hour of life. In fact, if anything, modern research has demonstrated that the the long-term physiological effects of worry can take time off of our lives. So it's, it's counterproductive. And so Jesus says we shouldn't be anxious about our material well-being because doing so is a waste of time and energy. It doesn't serve an actual purpose. And then in verse 27, Jesus points us back to nature again with the lilies of the field. The fact is that that flowers don't spin thread or, or work to provide clothing for themselves. And yet Jesus insists that even King Solomon, whose extravagance was legendary among the Jews, was never so glorious in his appearance as the flowers. And again, the argument is from the lesser to the greater. If God provides flowers to adorn the grass of the field, which is so worthless that it ends up being used as fire starter, then how much more can we be confident of his love and care for us as his people? And then in verses 29 and 30, Jesus gives us two final reasons not to be anxious about our lives. That's because all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Right now, at this particular point in history, the Gentiles, right, the nations of the world, were still outside of the people of God. And so Jesus' point here is, is that we should not be consumed with anxiety about our lives because that's what people who don't know God do. Right? People who don't know God worry about their lives. But God's people know that they can stand on the promises of his word with confidence that he will take care of them. Not only that, but Jesus insists that our Father knows what we need. And here we are reminded of the fact that God is not just God, and we are not just his creation in that that type of relational sense. But because of what Jesus has done for us, those who have responded to the gospel in faith have been adopted by God as his own children which completely changes the nature of our relationship and the expectations that we can have. You know, my kids are not shy about telling me what they need. In fact, they're very persistent about that, particularly when they don't get it as soon as they want it. Right? Daddy, 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 daddy. And every now and then it gets to the point where I have to say, I'm going to need you to chill out because I know what you need. Right? I know that you need a drink or you need a snack. Or you need to find your other shoe because you didn't put it where I told you to put it the first time. Or whatever the case may be. I know what you need, and I'm going to take care of it. Right? I love you, and I'm going to make sure that you get what you need. Now, you may not always get it as quickly as you would like. It may not always take the exact form that you would prefer for it to take. But I'm going to take care of you. And church, the truth is that God is an infinitely better father than, than I am or, or that any of us are. We can be assured that he will give us what we need. So having said all of this, with all of these reasons not to be anxiously concerned about our material lives, in verse 31, Jesus calls us instead to seek the kingdom of God. Instead of an anxious preoccupation with the, the material needs of our lives, our attention should be directed towards the kingdom. Right? The controlling focus of our lives should be placed on being who God calls us to be and doing what he calls us to do. And 
and uh, to look for ways to actively promote the advancement of his kingdom through the Great Commission as other people come to know and follow Jesus for themselves through the Great Commission. Right? For, for disciples of Jesus, this is what life is ultimately about. And if that's true, then that reality should be reflected in the way we approach our lives. And Jesus promises that as we seek the kingdom, everything that we need to live will be provided for us in the process. Right, so the first step in being rich toward God is not being preoccupied with anxiety over the material needs of our lives. And when we're confident that God is going to provide for us, that frees us to then take the second step, which we'll see as we pick up again, beginning in verse 32. Jesus says, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And so picking up again in verse 32, Jesus reassures us, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And again, we are reminded that in his grace, God has given us access to his kingdom. This is not something that we could ever achieve on our own. If we had all the money in the world, we couldn't buy our way into this. But out of his love, God has sent Jesus to atone for our sin through his life, death, and resurrection so that we can be forgiven of our sin and reconciled to him and so that we can be welcomed into his kingdom simply by trusting in what he has done for us. God has given us Jesus. There, there is nothing else that even remotely comes close to being of equal value. When everything else threatens to fall apart and we're, we're beginning to become consumed with anxiety over what's going to happen or what we're going to do about it, the cross of Christ is a steadfast, unmoving testimony to God's love and commitment for his people. It's unchanging. No matter what is going on, we can always look to the cross and know that God is for us and that he is with us. And as Paul makes clear in Romans chapter 8, if God was willing to send Jesus, then he's not going to hold back anything else that we need to live our lives. And so in light of this, Jesus gives us the application in verse 33, when he tells us, sell your possessions, give to the needy, provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. And so here we find that the way we use our money in this life can, in fact, have implication for our rewards in eternity. All right, if we use our money now in ways that are consistent with kingdom values, then we will have rewards to enjoy in heaven. All right, this gets to the very heart of what it means for us to be rich towards God. Uh, I do think that it should be said here that Jesus is using hyperbole Right? He's, he's exaggerating intentionally in order to make a point. I don't think that Jesus actually expects us to sell everything that we own and, and, and give all of it to the poor, because then there would be nothing else to give the poor. We would all have nothing in time. Right? But he is making a point. He's, he, is, he is wanting to challenge us toward a, a bold generosity 
toward kingdom purposes. In the same way that people take risks in order to buy stock or or to invest in a business, Jesus is calling us to use aggression, a certain type of aggression, in using our money for kingdom purposes. And so, uh, don't miss Jesus' little advertisement in the second half of verse 33. He he tells us that using our money for the kingdom is a can't-miss investment. All of our our possessions in this world are are always vulnerable. We could be robbed, the stock market could crash, a natural disaster can completely destroy everything that we own. But whatever treasure we invest in heaven will be safe for all eternity. It is a can't-miss investment. And then at the end of the passage, Jesus gives us a final word of caution when he says, For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. In other words, as Jesus says elsewhere, you cannot love God and money. This uh, reminded me of of the words of Billy Graham this week when, when he was known for saying that a checkbook is a theological document. A checkbook is a theological document. Give me five minutes with a person's checkbook and I will tell you where their heart is. Of course, today it wouldn't necessarily be our checkbook. It might be our our online banking statement or our credit card statement. Uh, But the point is the same. Our treasure reveals our hearts. We can say that we love God, but if we want to know for sure, then we should look at how we spend our money. And that will tell us and, and what we truly value in this life. And so in our passage this morning, Jesus warns about the dangers of covetousness and greed as he calls us to use our money to advance the kingdom. And this is an important message for us because we live in the, the midst of a society that, that constantly pushes us to be obsessed with materialism, and it encourages us to be dissatisfied with what we have and to constantly look for more, newer, bigger, better stuff. But Jesus is clear here that that approach is at odds with Christian discipleship. At the end of the day, this world is not our home. And while it's certainly not sinful for us to enjoy this life or, or even to be comfortable in this life, our ultimate concern should be that we are preparing and that we are helping others to prepare for eternity. Now, of course, any time that we talk about this, that we, we want to get into specifics, right? How much stuff is too much? Right? How much money should I give? Right? Is, it, is it immoral for me to buy Lucky Charms when I could have bought Marshmallow Mateys and, and saved money and given the difference to missions, Right? And these are not unimportant questions to think through, but I always hesitate to give specifics because, for one, everyone's situation is unique, and so what faithfulness looks like for one person may be different than what it looks like for someone else. And number two, because Jesus doesn't give specifics. In this passage, he he doesn't identify specifically the answer to any of these questions. And ultimately, as we read the passage, we see that it's not about specifics, it's about our perspective. Right? It's not about specifics, it's about our perspective. Over and over again in Luke, we keep seeing that Jesus' ultimate concern is not on our outward actions as much as it is about the state of our hearts. Right? And if, if our hearts are right, if we have the right perspective, then by and large, the, the specifics will take care of themselves. And so the main question for us to consider this morning in light of our text is, what is 
my perspective? What is my perspective? Do I recognize that the call to follow Jesus in discipleship makes demands on how I use my money? Do I believe that that God will come through on his promises to provide what I need? Am I primarily focused on getting more of the things of this world, or am I seeking the kingdom? Do I understand that that everything that I have ultimately comes from the Lord, and that if he has blessed me financially, it's not necessarily primarily so that I can have, again, more, better, newer things, but so that I can be a blessing to others and seek to advance the kingdom? This week I was thinking specifically about how this works itself out in the life of of our church. You know, it's easy for us to to put our gift in the offering box or to make a donation online, and and then the money just kind of disappears, right? It goes somewhere. Uh, But it doesn't actually disappear. Because in in addition to funding the ministries of our own local church, we have a number of partnerships that we support around the world in various ways for gospel ministry. And because of that, Think about this for just a moment. Okay, there are people that we will never meet in this life. But when we get to heaven, they are going to tell us that they are there because a missionary was able to share the message with them because we gave to enable them to go. There There will be people in heaven who tell us that they were able to read the scriptures. They got access to God's word because a translation they could understand was finally developed because we gave to make that uh, possible. There are brothers and sisters we'll never see in this life, but in heaven they will tell us that in the midst of persecution they got food or medical care, in part because we sent it through our partnership with Voice of the Martyrs. And and we could go on and on, but but because of that, think about it. When, When we get there on that day, when that happens... I don't think any of us are going to respond by thinking to ourselves, man, that was a waste. I really should have upgraded to a larger TV instead, right? I I shouldn't have have gotten the deluxe package of of that service. No. In any way that you look at it, there is nothing better that we can do with our finances than support the purposes of the kingdom. And so if we hear God's word this morning, and we're able to visualize that heavenly moment in advance, then let's pursue being rich toward God this morning by being confident in his care for us and by being generous in giving for the advancement of his kingdom. Let's pray together.